we really need to be bringing together sophisticated technologists and sophisticated ethicists and faith leaders to pull these levers as fast as we can and not get bogged down in doctrinal difference or attempts to, you know, persuade each other around things that we won't agree on. But on those things we do agree on, how do we love our neighbor and be an effective source for good in the world, how, you know, whatever that's bounded on. How do we participate in this thing? Because it's an all-hands-on-deck situation right now, and it's moving fast. It seems like we're wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world, full of uncertainty, is yet to be born. Like the poet Dante, we find ourselves in a darkened wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante's journey through darkness with the light of reason, but then Beatrice illuminated his path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At the Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Gretchen Huizinga. I'm a research fellow at AI and Faith and a principal investigator with the Beatrice Institute's project, being human in an age of artificial intelligence. What makes humans special? And what does it mean to flourish on the frontier of a technological future? So I'm delighted to welcome David Brenner to the podcast today. David is the founder and board chair of AI and Faith, which we'll learn all about shortly. He's also a great friend and colleague. Previously, David was a risk management attorney who practiced law in both Seattle, Washington and Washington, D.C., and he's a graduate of Stanford and UC Berkeley Law School. If I could brag about David for a minute with something that would never appear on his resume, I've never met a person who could inspire, initiate, ignite, and shepherd more efficiently and more effectively than David Brenner. I've said he could be one of those performers who keeps a dozen plates spinning above his head, but then he'd have to join the circus. And unfortunately, or fortunately, he's needed elsewhere. So full disclosure, I serve on the board of AI and Faith, and I'm a research fellow there. So if it sounds like I'm a little biased, I am. David Brenner, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much, Gretchen, and what a kind introduction. Well, let's talk about AI and Faith. I'm not sure how many of our audience even know this organization exists. It's a relatively young organization, even though I would say it was formed B.C. before covid And I believe it's the only one of its kind. So give us a brief history and overview of the organization. What was missing in the AI conversation that you felt needed the voices of the world's great religions to address? And what was the value add in an otherwise dense field of AI and AI ethics organizations? What was missing, I think, was depth in the ethics conversation. I came to this conversation with a background you described as a lawyer in risk management, working increasingly with technology companies over the uh, aughts and into the teens. And that was a set of business questions around how do you move forward with technology without getting snagged by problems? (laughs) When I stopped practicing law and was looking for something a little more foundational and something that would relate my faith life as a Christian to problems out in the culture, I realized that the big questions of artificial intelligence were the same as the big questions of faith, questions of 
who are we vis-a-vis what we create ourselves or experience in nature? Do we have free will and agency to act in the world? What is the meaning and purpose of life and of work? What's our source for truth and for justice? What are our standards of reference? All those questions were theoretical questions around 2017 when I first realized that artificial intelligence was likely to be a major conversation. It's already starting to be. There were already ethical groups around the conversation. You know, the big question was robot overlords right. at that time, but it was all theoretical. You know, it was all Hal in 2001, the movie, that level of conversation. Now here we are now six years later, and it's not theoretical any longer. No, It's been quite shocking what we've seen in the last six months, and it's on everybody's radar screen. Yeah. So talk a little bit about how you started this. I mean, you see these big questions, you see these big issues, and you stopped practicing law. What did you do? I was looking for bridge builders across the increasing polarization, and especially in the communities I was involved in the religious world. And one day I walked into the church library at my big church on the edge of the University of Washington I was attending, and there was a book propped up on the shelf by the librarian called Man's Final Invention? Question mark. And I thought, oh, well, what's this? It was about the robot overlord question and what would happen if we connected AI to the Internet and gave it arms and legs and let it out into culture. I thought, well, that's silly, based on all my prior experience, which have involved things like web liability and cybersecurity and those sorts of questions. But then I looked at the blurbs on the back of the book, and it was Bill Gates and Elon Musk. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I need to pay a little more attention. Out of that, we tried a, a couple of different programs at that church and another one right on the edge of the Amazon campus here in Seattle to see what people's reaction would be to the matchup of AI issues and faith questions. It was really positive. And so from that, we started to build a network of professors at the University of Washington who were church-going people who had an integrated faith and science outlook, and people in technology and faith leaders who were uh, pastoring congregations. From there, from the Pacific Northwest, over the next couple of years, we moved out nationally and then eventually internationally. And now we have a community of 130 experts who cross over from technology to faith leadership and all kinds of professions in between academics, sociology, psychology, neuroscience, business people, lawyers like me. So it's a big tent because the issues and AI reaches into all those areas. Right. Well, you know, and I just would add how I got involved briefly, and I'm not being the hero of my own story here, but my husband was on the treadmill at the club And he was reading an article in the Seattle Times about this organization. It had been covered in their tech section. And I saw your name and a bunch of other people too, but I didn't initially call you. I had called some other people that I knew tangentially with through my church who directed me back to you. They were down in California and it's like, oh, you really need to talk to David Brunner. So I called you up and here we are today. Well, David, we've already alluded to this a little bit, but why do you think AI is such a compelling subject right now? From your perspective, how is it different from other major technological innovations and why? I think it's the way it mirrors back to ourselves. You know, we always want to anthropomorphize things. I used to do it all the time with, even before the cartoon cars, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd look at 
the front of cars and see our human face in them, right? The headlights, the grill. And I think that's what happens with AI, the whole robot world. Before, when we used to think about robots, we'd think of the, you know, physical robots moving about. And then along came Alexa and other chatbot type assistants. And we realized, actually, this is a much more virtual thing. That's the stage we'll go through. And now we're at a point where that's really happening in a way that has that combines not only programmed responses, but seemingly spontaneously generated responses in ways that are seemingly knowledgeable and also emotional. We used to joke about, you know, Alexa and relationships with those commercial bots, but now we have this interface that feels like so much like us functionally. Mm. And I think that's the fascination. Also, you know, the ability to organize knowledge and find knowledge in easier and easier ways. Search was great. Wikipedia came along first, and there we had the world's knowledge sorted like a massive digital encyclopedia Britannica. Then search exposed us to the total knowledge of the universe, seemingly, but to deal with it on a one-on-one search basis. And then now we have a answers coming in organized fashion just by asking questions. It's like, remember Ask Jeeves from about 1992? Yeah. Now we have Ask Jeeves as a seemingly real person. Right. right there. <laughs> uh, with all the knowledge of the universe behind it. Yeah. So there's just this mirroring function. And then, of course, there's also the fearful side of it. Yeah. Which has gripped a, you know, a lot of people. Right especially now because of the speed with which this new GPT technology is improving. And when you see the tech creators like uh, Jeffrey Hinton, often described as the godfather of deep learning, neural networks, leaving his very highly paid job at Google, so he's free to talk about the risks involved here, you know, that has to get your attention for sure. Yeah. So between the fear and the remarkably functional imitation of ourselves, I think that's what's different here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting hearing people leaving so they can talk. I know several people in the faith world who've said, I've left my job so I can talk about faith, which is a whole other bucket and a whole other podcast. But speaking of faith, AI and faith is intentionally multi-faith. And you're a Christian believer. So kind of a multifaceted question here. First of all, I know that we had initially a statement by Brad Smith from, I think, chapter 11 of his book, Tools and Weapons, that ostensibly invited voices of the world's great religions to speak into the AI conversation. And yet it's been very, very difficult to get a seat at the table Why was it important for you to build this organization upon a robustly pluralist scaffolding? My experience for that came from another global health organization here in Seattle, the Washington Global Health Alliance, which I co-chaired a committee for. They made space for the faith world in that big global health venture. And these were major players in the global health world, the Gates Foundation, the University of Washington Global Health Department, and eventually World Vision which was down the freeway, but Gates was not talking to World Vision, even though Gates was the largest foundation in the world and World Vision was the largest faith-oriented relief and development agency in the world. So from that experience, I could see that if you had a third party and a topic that, a third party of structure and a topic that people could 
respectfully talk about and had passion around in ways that were related to their value systems, you could really get a lot done. Coming out of that, when I saw this opportunity with artificial intelligence as a new subject to work shoulder to shoulder on, I realized that that same pluralist approach that we'd taken in the global health world with the major religions represented in these big, large faith congregations here in the Seattle area, the largest mosque, the largest synagogue, the very large Presbyterian church, that that could work here well too as a pragmatic matter, because the secular side, just like in the global health world, the secular side in this big AI ethics debate will listen better if the major religions are working side by side cooperatively and respectfully to make the points on which they agree. Yeah. So that was the pragmatic side, but also it's it's actually quite interesting to have these conversations. I know you've participated in our research fellows uh, monthly call. And I've been amazed as I sit in on those calls at how much our Jewish and Islamic research fellows agree on a law-based system for as a foundation for this ethical conversation. You know, here you have a 4,000-year-old legal system, legally-based faith system, the Jewish world. You've got about a 1,300-year-old faith tradition that builds off of part of the Old Testament, Islam. And the sort of structure that they share actually overlaps quite a bit, especially given that to some degree they come out of the same sacred text. Mm -hmm. So there's a substantive part of it. But the main thing for us is our main point working together is that faith and the major religions and their faith leaders and the tech creators who adhere to those religions belong at this table around how do we get AI for human flourishing and not destruction because their faith traditions our ancient wisdom that's been applied to ongoing developments throughout the last four millennia. And a lot has been learned from that. So how do we apply that to this new problem? Well, interestingly, on that note, you talk about law-based faith structures. And so, you know, the Christian faith rests upon the shoulders of the Old Testament or, or the Hebrew Bible. What do you think the value add of the Christian voice And I will use the broad ecumenical Christian voice because in our organization, we run the gamut from Catholics to Baptists to Quakers to, you know, every variety. um, And of course, Presbyterian (laughs) of our founder. What do you think the difference is in sort of that differentiation of the ecumenical saying Christian versus the multi-faith? What's the value out of the Christian voice? You know, I think it relates to building on that Jewish platform of the Old Testament. But as a Christian, what I would say takes that to this other dimension of a personal relationship with God uh, that grows out of grace, where the emphasis is on love and the power of the Holy Spirit to change people's own hearts and minds. It's kind of about passion that leads to action through divine power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. to make the changes internally that will give us a better platform to work from personally and a more loving way of engaging with the world. Right. So it's kind of the best of both from my perspective. Yeah. I love our Jewish brothers and sisters and our Islamic and Hindu and Buddhism. It's such an interesting additional and different dynamic, but 
Speaking as a Christian, and this is the beauty of what I think we brought together here, each one of these faiths and our adherents gets to speak into this channel in a respectful way, but in a full-throated way, so that we don't have to dummy any of this down. So I could answer in the middle of a meeting among all our experts the same way I've just answered you. And there's a wonderful freedom in that. And I think it, it would be deeply frustrating not to be able to do that. Right. And I would say to affirm that some of the conversations we've had with our multi-faith brothers and sisters have been incredibly illuminating in terms of what they think. And so bringing all these ideas into an open marketplace of ideas is, I think, one of the big value adds of AI and faith. And I'm going to stop saying the phrase value add as of now. (laughs) (laughs) So, David, one of the phrases you've said in the past and even recently is to pull the big levers of faith to gain the voice that we're seeking. And you may have actually just explained that, but maybe not. I'm trying to unpack what you mean by the big levers of faith. So what do you mean and how do we do that? That's a good question. But to start with, you know, if we just think about how many people in the world are adherents to one of these major religions. And by focusing on the major religions, we don't mean to exclude other groups either. It's just a question of how much can you manage to hold together in the big tent that we're trying to work in. So you've got three quarters of the world's people adhering to these five religions. If you add in Confucianism and Taoism, you pick up, you know, a good deal more. And those people are, as I've said earlier, motivated by their religious faith to a greater or lesser degree. But that's a lot of people on this planet. Then they have faith leaders who some of them, many of them trust, and those people can bring a voice on a more concentrated basis. And then you have many faith leaders or faith-oriented tech creators. You know, so many Hindus, for example, here in the United States, because of our immigration policy around bringing overseas PhD candidates and students from China, from India, from countries all over the world, many of them bring their religion with them. So those people are right at the creation of this technology. So you got a massive lever of faith people all over the world who are the consumers of the technology that big tech would like to sell their products to and have them use. And then you've got the people within big tech who have a smaller lever, but right there at the engine. (laughs) So how can we pull those two levers effectively? Then, of course, we're all voters here in the United States. And we have a chance to, you know, have our representatives focus on this. We have some form of political engagement. At AI and Faith, we're an educational nonprofit, so we aren't lobbying for anything. But clearly, there's a need for an engagement at the government level. So without lobbying, how can we help educate people who are lobbying to understand that within this ethics conversation, you know, there are values on the part of everybody engaged in the conversation. How about we include values that are based on these ancient wisdom systems that are adhered to by so many people? Yeah. Even as you talk about the levers, you know, the big ones and the small ones, and then you start talking about voting. And I'm thinking it used to be pulling a lever, but now you fill in a little dot. (laughs) I'm going to actually be thinking each time I circle that dot in a Sharpie, I'll think of pulling a lever. Go in a little bit further on this, how we do that, because one of the things we find with a secular community is resistance to metaphysical or religious thinking. It doesn't fit the science box. And for some time, it's religion and other metaphysical ideas have been excluded because they aren't provable through a scientific method, aka, you know, experiments and replicable practices. So 
How do we get into the conversation where we think people are going to listen? Those that are pulling the levers close to the engine. One approach that we've been using is through emerging faith employee resource groups within the Fortune 500 companies in America. So the diversity, equity, and inclusion world has realized that in addition to the original groups like race, ethnicity, gender, environment, sexual orientation, that there are large numbers of employees for whom their faith matters. And of course, employers have to accommodate those faiths too under our constitution in various ways. So these groups have started forming up as DI groups, faith employee research groups, source groups, and they're pretty much a pluralist, a big umbrella basis. That's how the companies want them. But within Mm -hmm. them, there are these passionate individual faith groups working together, just like we're trying to do. They have a big conference each year in D.C., and for the last three years, we've participated in that conference and provided panels and workshops on how do you move from your faith belief to an ethical position about the work that's right in front of you. So if you're working on a technology product and it's an AI-powered product, you know, what do you think of that? Let's say it's a surveillance tool or a facial recognition software or something or an HR algorithm, something mm. that's controversial, and you can easily you know, read about that everywhere. Well, is that an okay thing to be working on? And if so, why? And how do you make your peace with that? And then what about your company's ethics? If you can understand and develop your own personal ethic around that, then relate that to what your company says is why it's okay for them to be doing that and question that and come alongside the ethics officers that more and more are being created in these companies to help them and support them in their work because they're in a tough spot too, right. trying to rationalize an ethical approach and the company's profit motive. Right. Uh, so we think there's a very handy lever that didn't exist before and is ready you know, to be pulled by helping people understand themselves, the position they're in and the opportunity they have to make a difference. Right. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of bringing something to someone's attention. Like, I'm just going along because this is what I'm told to do. These are the big ethical questions that have plagued us since we were created. You know, do I follow God? Do I trust God? Or do I fearfully follow man and seek the approval of man? So mm-hmm. anyway, again... And you know, we're building on a nice big foundation. So for the last 40, 50 years, the faith and science world that supposed duality has been pulled together more and more by groups like BioLogos. And then you have the faith and work world, which has also been forming up for the last 50 or so years, you know, not just being a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim on, would that be Sunday, Friday and Saturday, (laughs) but but also all week week. Yeah. Yeah. These are questions about integration, right? Integrating faith and science and integrating your own life in seven days a week, your work and your home and your interests all into a framework that actually fits together. Yeah. And in some ways, it's bringing the paths back together in the sense that science and religion were not always separate. In fact, they were traditionally the same, right? Theology. Right up until the 1700s or even beyond, you know, Adam Smith was a Scottish Enlightenment 
capitalist right. Christian. Right. Isaac Newton was a, you know, if you leave out the alchemy part, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was a solid Christian. Francis Bacon, I mean, Galileo, you can just go right on back. And so I think this dualism is a false one, but certainly it's been pervasive. And then technology especially is such an interesting puzzle to me how you have this fascination with the virtual mm. in big tech and yet a rejection of the spiritual. Yeah. It's like the model is pretty much the same. You've got material stuff, you got, you know, hardware, and then you have software, and then you can use that to create a metaverse that is nowhere except in the digital world. Right. Well, we have hardware out of the material world, and we have software, our brains and our emotions. And we have a spiritual dimension, which we in Christianity would call our soul, that pulls all that together. It's the part that lasts. It's eternal. And even there, you've got in big tech this uh, parallel. Everybody who wants to, uh, in the singularity, who wants to find life beyond this material life by preserving their brains and uploading their, you know, their cognition, their mind, and uh, lasting. So there's one-for-one one correlation, and yet... They call it virtual, and we call it spiritual. Yeah. You know, you've just answered, I think, the next question I was going to ask you, which is whether the big stories of faith tradition are relevant alternatives to the big story of tech. Oddly enough, I would switch that around to some degree to say, are the big tech narratives relevant to what's the reality of the spiritual world? But what you're talking about is narratives of ontology and eschatology, which technology, all the ologies, are attempting to tell, to create these narratives that address the same deep spiritual questions. So talk a little bit about how you think these narratives compare and come together, or don't. Maybe they don't. You know, the tech story is pretty young. <laughs> the faith story is the oldest story of mankind, right? Mm. One of the forces or elements that caused me to really want to jump into this space was Yuval Harari's books, Sapiens and then Homo Deus, which came out around 2016 to 18, right around the time we were forming. And he's an Israeli historian who tells, uh, packages up in a very compelling and readable way the story of Sapiens, with the backbone and through line being our ability to use language to create self-awareness, and then eventually a story for who we are and what we're trying to do. So it's organizing our history by saying we organized as humans in ways no other animal could because we were able to verbalize, vocalize our story. I think that's true, especially when you look at major religions like Judaism and Christianity. It's a 4,000-year-old story, and our story was started out oral like other religions, and then it got written down in the Bible. So you have this amazing book that has amazing integrity in the way that it's been preserved. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, that took the story back to about 100 BC, which was only a couple centuries after the story was first written down, which was about 2,000 years after the story started. You know, and then we can see all through the line of transcripts and manuscripts that it's lasted this whole time in an incredibly accurate fashion, right? So here we have a 4,000-year-old story. And it, one classic way of stating that story is creation, fall, and that happens in the first three chapters of Genesis. We blew it early. <laughs> and then 
redemption, which is happens for Christians in the first the Gospels of the New Testament, and then restoration, which is the rest of the story right on from Revelation forward through the end of the written Bible, the canon, and right on through the next 2,000 years, which we've been living. So that's a compelling story. I think for a technology, it's a really important point, I think, for us to say to our co-ethicists in this big debate, everybody's got a story and everybody's got values they're bringing to this. So let's elevate, you know, your story. Let's get those values out on the table and compare them to the values we have. So Christianity, what's our, what are our great values? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Jesus said that's the greatest commandment, right? Which builds on the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there's this compelling model of love and this compelling model of who we are. We have a heart, we have a mind, we have the ability to act, and we have a soul. So big tech ethicists, who do you say we are and why do you say that? Where does that come from? And it'll usually be an enlightenment kind of humanist foundation that's based on some generalized sense of fairness, of respect for each other, that we're all deserving of that for unarticulated reasons, but, you know, just because we are. And I think that, you know, when you make that comparison, you can see that there are good reasons to talk from both perspectives and then to ask, well, what difference does that make in the kind of products that we want to see and in what we would expect people would do with those products? So for Christians, for Jews, we got the fall, right? Mm. Our belief would be bad things are almost certain to happen along, no matter how good the tool. If it's capable of being used for good and bad, it's going to be used for both. Right. <laughs> and we'd like to, you know, promote the use of it for good and on whatever common ground we can help humanity come to around what that means. You know, an interesting point there in that I think we could find a lot of common ground on the just becauses, you know, the things that you name are all values that no one would really argue with. The problem comes when you are confronted with disagreement or personal gain versus personal loss or whatever, and you have to have empowerment to act well, to act wisely, to act good. And so it goes back to what you said at the beginning is what is the power that we have? And if it's just human, I think our history is pretty damning. (laughs) Well, and it's certainly, you know, a lot of people would say, well, the last thing we want at the table is sectarian religion, right? Right. (laughs) Because there's such a great track record of that and throughout the ages and right up till current times, right? So certainly that problem of the corruption of humanity exists within the religious world every bit as much as it does out in the rest of the world, you know, so we have to be very careful in how we engage from a position of equal corruption. Right, right. (laughs) We bring to the table some wisdom, but we don't necessarily bring better behavior other than the possibility of it and through this belief system. And so, I mean, institutionally, not necessarily better behavior, but personally, we believe that you can change for the better through the power of belief and the power, again, in the Christian realm of the Holy Spirit working within you. Right. 
And then out of that come great things. If you look back in the in American history, the Second Great Awakening in the 1820s to the, four, to the 60s before the Civil War, there were so many great social justice movements, starting with abolition, of course, but also women's empowerment and mm-hmm. female equality and all kinds of other major movements that helped the poor, helped animals, helped, you know, an integrated life. Of course, now you would look at the sort of integration of faith and politics, and that's become deeply polarized right at this moment. But it doesn't have to be. And especially if you implement that great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, and then things begin to work better. Right. I think one of the things that Christianity brings to the conversation is the acknowledgement of a spiritual evil and of human sin and saying these things are real. One of the guys I interviewed in my dissertation said, we have this concept of the bad actor, and it's always someone else. It's it's never us, right? Well, let's head into a more sort of practical conversation now, and I want to anchor it in the rise of the GPTs, Mm -hmm. or the generative pre-trained transformer models. And they came onto the scene sort of galloping in November of 2022, They weren't necessarily new, but the holy trinity of AI, I'll call it, massive data, sophisticated algorithms, and enormous compute power made them robust enough to draw a lot more attention than previous versions of AI. So there's a lot of questions that are arising in this realm, and I just want to ask you some short, punchy questions and see how you respond to them from your perspective as a Christian believer So what I like first, as you've talked about it before, is can AIs assume the traditional role of pastor or priest, teacher or leaders? And if so, should we send a bot to seminary? I think they can functionally behave in some ways that actually can be useful missionally for helping people with their initial questions about faith, for example. If they can stay on track, you know, there's a big question for everybody using these GPTs about for whatever purpose you're trying to use them, can you have it be a good spokesperson for you and (laughs) rather than a renegade? So there's a big technical issue that many companies are trying to work out so that the GPT can be uh, useful and not a problem. But let's assume that we get past that. You have people at scale who back on that, you know, large lever I was talking about who may want to engage more with, you know, a GPT than a human, especially at the beginning of a faith journey or along the way. And so, you know, that could be very useful. Why do you think that is? That's an interesting statement. Yeah, I think it's safe. You know, we're getting more and more trained by social media to engage digitally rather than in person, right? Nobody comes to your door anymore, right? So just as you would Google and search for those questions, you know, here you have an interface that actually feels more emotional, more like you, and yet it's not going to, you know, you can turn it off. (laughs) Right. You can go away. So should we send it to seminary? I think that's what has to happen, right? It has to be trained. For anyone trying to use these GPTs, if you've got a specialized knowledge base that you're going to sit on top of what I think of as the big box of words, the large language model, you know, you have to decide carefully what goes into your own specialized training set so that the GPT stays on track and also so that it's accurate. So it has a good, solid base to work from. So that's sending a GPT to seminary if you're going to want it to be functioning like a priest or a spiritual advisor. Right. 
But then you get back to the breadth of expression in the spiritual community, even among Christians, even among Jews, even among Islam and others, you know, it's everyone's got their own gig. So do we really specialize out and say, okay, here's the Catholic GPT, here's the Islamic Sunni GPT here. You know what I'm saying? Uh I think that's the best outcome because... Well, I'm not particularly an advocate for, you know, diverse religious viewpoints for the sake of diverse religious viewpoints. That's the world we live in. And it's a world that reflects, you know, basically who we are as humans. And all these different cultures have had these faiths originate in different ways over time. As a Christian, I, you know, of course, am attracted to the beliefs of my own religion. And there are some challenging parts of that religion where Jesus has exclusive claims about who he is and how one becomes related to the Father. Mm. But leaving that aside, you know, that's the world we live in that we can navigate. And I would think that it's the best way to use these GPTs because the bad world is one in which the GPT just makes up a new religion. I mean, for some people, that might be the, uh, you know, the feature and not the bug because who knows (laughs) what it's going to come up with. I mean, I can imagine many people saying, wow, finally, we'll get the fully integrated view of what it means to be a religious person. And of course, that's happened all through history. You've got lots of different religions that bubble up and claim to be the new one or that syncretize across religions. I mean, if you look at the new age space, it's got a lot of kind of confluence of different ideas. And individually, a lot of people are putting together different parts of different religions into their own kind of customized viewpoint. Well, GPT will do that for you in spades, I'm sure. But so we'll have both. And I think the question is, you know, just like now, people need to carefully consider what they believe and why. And the same will be true there too, except they'll just be more on offer and agent to help you either stay in an orthodox lane or invent a whole new one. Right. Well, and we'll leave aside for this podcast, the whole thorny problem of you know, what social media does is give you more of what you already like. And so do you ever get confronted with challenges to your faith that might strengthen your faith if you only do the Baptist GPT or whatever? But again, well, just like, uh, you know, one of the good things I've read about GPT is we have this whole controversy about it, writing your term papers and, uh, you know, everything else and uh, plagiarism and sorts. It's not really plagiarizing anything. It's just pulling a whole bunch of stuff together. Might be violating a whole lot of copyrights. Uh, We'll find out more about that as it wakes its way through the legal process. Oh, man. There's your lawyer (laughs) self coming out. This (laughs) idea of it being a sparring partner, I think, is really a pretty neat approach to it, right? Then it's a tool. Then it's this uh, knowledge base that you can try things out against. And that's true in religion, just like it is in writing up a marketing statement, right? You can say, well, what about... You know, how would a Buddhist think of this or what parts of Catholicism might be, you know, really attractive to me as opposed to my Baptist background, right? And they can do that for you. Right. It may not be orthodox even there. It might not get get it quite right, but it, that's where it's a tool. It's just a first step. Yeah, and I will say that, you know, my experience within AI and faith and the the many years that I've been involved in the organization, one of the benefits has been to hear other viewpoints, not just with, within my faith, you know, the Christian expression, but also outside of that. And it's broadened. First of all, it's educated. Like, you know, if I only stay in my bubble, I never hear what the other 
faiths actually say that they believe and how we are saved and how we pray and all these kinds of things. So, so that's good. Well, let's move on to another question. And one of the things that's sort of buzzing around in AI circles right now is with, with the GPTs is this idea of hallucinations and misinformation and whether a machine that doesn't know or have, you know, sentience could lie on purpose. So the big question, can AI lie? is a good one. And I anchor this in the idea that Satan in the Christian faith is a liar and the father of lies. So how wouldn't he worm his way into hallucinations and misinformation, even if with a dumb, and I use the term in air quotes, machine? It's such an interesting question because, you know, even in the question, we attribute it to a sort of personhood that isn't really there, right? The way it lies is to pick up the lies in its training set, which is the knowledge of humanity and our own way of interacting with each other, everything we've written, spoken, and done. You know, so that's pervaded by deception just because of that problem of the fall and of our own defects, our own willingness to lie and tell untruths, whether it's purposeful or because we don't know or understand or for whatever reason, the whole spectrum of intentionality there and, you know, innocence all the way through to malevolence. So it's just reflecting all of that. But it does seem to have this capacity to pull things together where you don't know where it's going to come from. (laughs) You know, so Kevin Roos, the New York Times reporter who was on the Daily on Wednesday a few months back, the New York Times Daily podcast, extolling the virtues of this after having a tryout on the day before. On Friday, he's back on an unscheduled appearance to say, wait a minute, (laughs) this thing tried to get me to leave my wife and, you know, join up with it. (laughs) Interestingly, on Sunday, this Sunday, there was another article by Kevin Roos about a new company called Anthropic. It was a spinoff of a bunch of employees from OpenAI, you know, which created the large language model that GPT is based on, GPT-4 now. So these employees left because they were worried about the direction things were going and that there wasn't sufficient oversight for it and people were just going to blast forward. Anthropic is supposed to be the safe version. They're supposed to be the ones who are being super careful. Like Google initially said, you know, do no evil. So these guys are uh, going to give you the safe AI. Right. But again, it's their safe AI, right? It's their worldview, their ideas. And they're part of the same blanking on the the phrase altruistic entrepreneurship that Mm -hmm. uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was famously an advocate for, the guy behind uh, the collapse of his big Bitcoin empire. So these people are coming from that school. They've created a what they call constitutional AI. This is the first time I've read about this, so I'll have to learn, try to learn more. Basically, you give the bot a set of rules. So it's a combination of rules-based programming at a very high level, a sort of moral framework for the bot to follow. And that's supposed to govern the hallucination confabulation. It's supposed to cure the AI of the bad stuff in the box and get it straight, running on the straight and narrow. It's funny because Roos said, actually, he was testing it in the same way, having learned (laughs) how you could get uh, GPT off bad path. He was trying to get this one, too. And he said it's frustrating because it was constantly shutting him down and saying, I'm sorry, I can't go there, right? <laughs> so apparently it's working. Yeah, that's so annoying. Who made the Constitution, yeah. right? Where do those rules come from? So our point is, yeah, well, we all need to be thinking in those terms. We need some kind of a 
moral framework which this GPTs can operate. And it shouldn't just be what bubbles up from big tech. It needs to be the broad questions of morality that have been discussed all the way back to the Greeks and the Jews. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're talking about, I think, in AI circles is called alignment, and it's trying to get the machine or the AI to be aligned with human values. That's such a broad term. You have to put it in air quotes. What are human values? It's interesting, though, that the company is called Anthropic, which again is man-focused. There's no theopic in there and no transcendence, I would imagine, in the rules that it programs into these things. And it sounds more like they're in the sort of classic buckets of ethics philosophy, deontological and utilitarian, nothing beyond that. And maybe they're training virtuous machines by saying, we're going to, you know, anchor this in values as opposed to just all the data in the world. But well, answer this, David, we're calling these things generative models, generative pre-trained transformer models, GPTs, which connotes creativity. So my third kind of anchor question for you is, can AI be creative? in the ontological sense of the word, what are the requirements of creativity and can a machine ever have them? I think functionally, this was one of the shockers, right, of the last six months. Functionally, GPT seems to be able to do things that we would think of as creative. For example, if you ask it for titles for your program, it'll give you a bunch of interesting titles, right? That's basically what advertising is, right? And marketing. So suddenly we've gone from the thing that seemed like it was most protected work-wise to now least protected. (laughs) You know, it's white-collar workers who need to be concerned, knowledge workers. It can code, self-code, which is one of the reasons people are so fearful about where it could go because it could code itself beyond us. Entertainment and arts-wise, you know, I'm not sure that There was this, uh, for the last three or four years, you could see people trying to use AI to generate art, which always seemed to me to be a sort of silly exercise. I mean, why? Sure, video games are interesting. I mean, that's the background for them. You know, create a whole world. But compared to a piece of art and all the creativity that really goes into that, you know, where artists are always trying to come up with something new and unique for themselves... You know, this is the exact opposite of that. This is like what I remember in art history in college. I took a few of those classes and, you know, professors would categorically dismiss something as derivative. Oh, that's derivative, (laughs) they'd say. (laughs) Not original at all. Well, (laughs) Well, that's all that GPT does, or Dolly. I mean, the image side of this. I mean, it's taking stuff that currently exists and it's reassembling it in different ways, right? But then you could also say, well, that's mostly what artists do too, frankly. <laughs> you know, they're... so who knows? I mean, creativity is a squishy thing. Yeah. But, it but is. there's no craft in it from a human point of view. You know, and I think yeah. the element of craft is what's still especially missing because there is something about the way we do things that involves both the mind and a long term engagement with ideas. And then the ability to translate that into something physical, you know, maybe Mm. it's just conceptual art, but we're still moving or material art, a play, a piece of music, you know, and it's the friction, it's the challenge that's missing with this when you push a button and it'll give you a symphony, right? 
nobody wants to listen yeah. to it because how, yeah. why? There's no humanness to it. There's not something that really makes you say, wow, there was genius in that, right? Right. No, I hate to bring up Pink Floyd. (laughs) 50 years ago today. Yeah, I mean, watching a documentary on how they created Dark Side of the Moon, and it was all analog. You know, every single noise in there was mixed with, physically mixed. I just read a great book by Simon Winchester uh, called How We Know What We Know or something like that. I like Simon Winchester. This must be his 50th book. He's a journalist who writes prolifically all books about all kinds of interesting angles in the world. And in this book, he asks, what is it about polymaths that fascinate us? You know, mm. these rare people who know so much. And compare that to Wikipedia. Well, Wikipedia knows a lot, right? But it's not the same as that being housed in the brain of one person. You know, it's fleeting and it deteriorates and it's all part of the human condition. And it's like an extraordinary human, right? So it's not enough to just have the assemblage and the functionality. There's something about the difficulty of doing things that really matters to us. And none of that's really in this. No. And I guess the bigger question is, if you didn't know an AI did it, would you have the same discernment that if you did? But some of what you're talking about is the divine spark, the sort of tracing back to the divine intelligence, the imago dei, the the God-breathed nature of humans. And so, I don't know, we could talk forever about creativity and creation and origin stories and so on. But I want to end with a couple questions that kind of go philosophical, David. And I'll start with by asking whether you think the challenges of AI are really new and different, or are they more the same challenges humans have always faced in light of a fallen world, but with a brand new technology or a brand new and more powerful and more deceptive technology? I think it's pretty much the same set of problems, but framed in a new way and a functional way that we've never seen before. You and I have talked before about the chapter in Isaiah of the Old Testament, Isaiah 44, I think it is, where the writer says, here you have a log, a piece of wood, half of it you use to you know, warm your room and your food. The other half you make into an idol. Then you worship the other half of the log. You know, So that goes, that goes back to what, about 600 B.C.? So here we have the same thing, I think, happening with this digital technology. It's so functional, it's so much like us, and yet more powerful, potentially, that we're going to want to use it for everything we can get out of it, and then we're going to worship it. (laughs) It's going to run our lives, and, you know, we'll fall in love with it. So there's nothing new there except for the fact that it's extraordinarily functional. We've never seen anything like this before. You know, another comparison is nuclear. You know, I think that's probably the best time to go back and look at and ask, what did people of faith think when we got the capacity to destroy the entire world? That was new, right? We never had that before the atomic bomb. So it's interesting because in our newsletter, which comes out each month, this last month we had a piece by Don Howard, who's one of the leading military ethicists in the country at Notre Dame, philosopher, been at this for 40 years, edits the Einstein Papers. And we asked him to compare Jeffrey Hinton, the godfather of AI who left Google in order to talk out, speak out about this risk, with Robert Oppenheimer and his famous statements decrying to a limited extent what he'd invented. 
And Don's take was, it's not on the same plane at all. I mean, nuclear was and is material. It has the ability to take care of everything, (laughs) wipe out everything. You know, so the risk of robot overlords compared to the risk of a nuclear holocaust is not even comparative to him. On the other hand, we've never been in this position for the kind of surveillance and control and other risks, you know, barring a nuclear holocaust or heat domes that incapacitate or hurricanes that destroy the material world too under climate change. So it's different from any other technology, I think, that we've experienced today. So if I could boil it down, it would be scale and scope of technologies that we're talking about. I wouldn't underestimate the crafty human mind either in terms of what it could do right. <laughs> to the planet. Yeah, it's just another tool. And it's early days. People are piling in, though, without care. Everybody's got motivations of various sorts, and it's very hard to slow this train, despite the levers we're trying to pull. But we sure need to try. Because we don't have, here's the bottom line for me, we don't have to take what's on offer unless we sit back and passively accept it the same way we've accepted everything else up till now. But this thing is different, whether or not it's a real threat. A lot of serious, you know, creators of this technology believe it is. So let's pause. And as it comes along, let's do what we can in our own agency to wisely use it. Well, David, as the standard bearer, and I mean that, as the standard bearer of AI and faith, would you say you're more optimistic or pessimistic about AI's impact on human society, especially as we look back on how you answered that last question? Well, I think as a Christian who believes that there is an end to uh, this world coming um, in the New Testament, a good end, you know, I can be optimistic about this technology just like anything else that's happening in the world. That's the source of Christian hope, ultimately. Not the short-term or the medium-term or even the long-term developments of these things. Obviously, a lot of bad things have happened over time and will continue to happen. So that shouldn't determine my bottom-line hope. So that makes me, by faith, an optimist. Then the question, though, is, okay, how do we manage and to secure that restorative element. You know, if it, if it was creation, fall, redemption, restoration, how do we participate in the restoration here? And I think there are real reasons to engage AI-powered technologies. I mean, there's new knowledge. There's lots of wonderful healthcare solutions that can come from this and real enhancement of people's lives who are currently suffering real deficits, whether it's a physical disability or it's lack of food or it's lack of access to, you name it. It's not a nirvana, and we shouldn't just let it run. Another article that you and I have talked about in the last few days is Mark Andreessen's article, How AI Will Save the World. Well, I don't believe in that. (laughs) I think there are better saviors of the world, but I do think there's a lot of positives that can come from this if it's more regulated than Mark Andreessen would like to see it regulated. Right. So I'm in between. We have to be a good steward of this tool like every other thing that comes along. And there's a lot of good that can come from it. Mm. And if we aren't willing to steward it, then we're like Jesus' parable of the talents, where we just buried the piece of treasure he gave us. And then when he returns, he said, well, why didn't you use that? Put that to good use. And and then he he banishes that person and gives the good stuff to the one who did put it to good use, right? 
the extra. Right. So that's the frame I think we need to approach this as, as Christians, and then alongside our fellow believers, seeking to do the best we can to boundary this technology and channel it into good outcomes. That's amazing. Yeah, just looking at all the parables of Jesus and saying, how would we apply that thinking to AI and what we do with it in the world? Well, David, as we close, I do want to ask you one final question, and it has to do with the future of AI and faith. And, you know, the organization started, and so much has happened since it did in the few years it's been in existence. What do you see on the path forward, perhaps even in light of what some technologists are aiming for in artificial general intelligence and or a super intelligence? Well, I think it's really vital that we partner up with every other effective organization in this space that we can. There are an increasing number of denominations that are looking hard at this problem and have real reach. So, for example, the Vatican for several years now has had the Rome call for AI, which is a partnership with big tech companies and other government agencies in Europe. It's broadening out to include Islam and the chief rabbi of Israel and others. And the Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the world, just adopted their AI resolution at their convention. You know, there are other global groups like the World Evangelical Alliance and many other large denominations. And, you know, and that's that's just in the Christian space. We really need to be bringing together sophisticated technologists and sophisticated ethicists and faith leaders to pull these levers as fast as we can and not get bogged down in doctrinal difference or attempts to, you know, persuade each other around things that we won't agree on. But on those things we do agree on, how do we love our neighbor and be an effective source for good in the world? How, you know, whatever that's founded on, how do we participate in this thing? Because it's an all hands on deck situation right now and it's moving fast. Yeah. David Brenner, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. It's just been delightful. Now, vice versa, Gretchen, as usual, we have the greatest conversations. So we do. thank you for another one. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's Beatrice Institute, all one word. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.